How you guys doing? What do you want to talk about today? Jesus? All right, we'll do that. So uh, here we go. Um, I came, hey, I came across the idea behind this sermon uh, completely by curiosity and happenstance, okay? Um, which probably happens with some of you sometimes. You see something in the real world, you know, in the newspaper or on the news or in a broadcast or on a TV show or something along those lines. And you think to yourself like, oh my gosh, like I don't actually know if the Bible addresses that directly or like in a roundabout way or what the Bible actually says about that. So then you look it up and then it leads down this whole rabbit trail where you learn so many things. And that's what happened with this sermon. Um, because I was looking for a hard truth to speak of. And this is the finale of our hard truth series. So I get to wrap it all up. And it may not be a surprise to any of you that I'm starting off this morning talking about a movie that I saw. Um, for those of you that know me and how often I talk about them, I saw a movie um, called Silence came out in 2016 and it's directed by Martin Scorsese, great director, stars Andrew Garfield, Adam Driver, and Liam Neeson as Jesuit priests in the 1600s in Japan. Thrilling stuff. And it's in this movie, uh, it, you know, it's rated R because it's got physical and psychological violence against Christians in it. Uh, and I'll talk to, uh, to almost anybody about this movie because it presents so many questions. It, it's about Japan's political opposition to Christianity in the 1600s. It wrestles with a lot of questions like, do you know what it means to suffer for your faith? Is it appropriate for Christians to recant their profession of faith under certain circumstances? Uh, and the big question overall is, if you can't guess from the title, when you are suffering for your faith, where is God in all of that? Does God hear the cries of his believers when they're persecuted, when they're hated, or is he silent? And those are a lot of very, very important questions. So um, I remember a friend of mine that works for a movie website he went to go see this at, at a film festival before it came out. And he was talking about it on this podcast that he hosts. And it was like two days after he saw it, he was just like, I, I didn't like it. I don't understand why Martin Scorsese would choose to do something like this. Gangster guy, gangster films, that's what he should be making. Um, didn't really make a lot of sense. It was uncomfortable to watch at times, yada, yada, yada. But then something really interesting happened. Um, every week for the next two months on his podcast, the topic of this movie kept coming up. He kept talking about it. And he admitted finally, like after a few weeks, he was like, I cannot stop thinking about this. I can't stop wrestling with this. This idea that, like, how would you, how do you live in a world that hates you? How do you live surrounded by people that dislike you and that want what's worst for you or want so badly for you to stop believing what you believe? And it's an interesting question. 
So when I think about scripture and I think about persecution, and I'm listening to that on that podcast and I had just watched this movie, um, you think persecution naturally, the, my mind immediately goes to Paul, probably the most persecuted Christian in history. And I'm looking through um, some of the things that Paul had written. I go to his last letter. So for those of you that don't know, Paul's last letter is 2 Timothy, the last words that he would write to anyone else. So if you want to get an idea of what is close to the last words that Paul spoke, the last thoughts that he wanted to get out there in the world, read 2 Timothy. It's a great book. And um, it's written by a man who knows that he's nearing the end of his life. Paul has been persecuted his entire life and he's about, well, his entire Christian life, and he's about to be put to death for his faith by Nero. And he's writing to Timothy, encouraging him in the many areas of ministry that he's going to go through. So we as Christians can see this as an encouragement to us when we go into ministry. Now, when I say that, I don't mean like when you go into full-time ministry. I, any, I mean, any kind of ministry, any time that you volunteer for the church. I mean, any time that you go to church, any time you as attend a small group or lead a small group, anything along those lines, any time that you are involved in ministry, these words can be an encouragement to you. Um, it's great. The words that he writes, they are some of the most beautiful but then at the same time, some of the most tragic words that you will read all throughout scripture. And at the end of the letter, Paul's writing to Timothy to give him basically like what's like a state of the union address or a state of the church address. Like this is what's going on with everybody everywhere, just so you know. He's catching Timothy up on where everyone is, both physically and spiritually, current states of all of his acquaintances and all of his friends, so that the young pastor Timothy could carry on with the mission after Paul passes away. And it's in 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 10, that I got stuck. And that this whole sermon was kind of birthed out of. So Paul catches Timothy up on a guy named Demas, who hasn't been mentioned much in scripture. Anybody here know who Demas is? Right. That's accurate. Demas is mentioned three times in scripture. And not mentioned in the way where there's like a cool story or a backstory, like mentioned by name three times. He's mentioned in Philemon, and it's said that he is um, a follower. What did I say exactly? Oh, he's a, a fellow worker. So he's an evangelist, just like Paul. He's a missionary, just like Paul. Fellow worker in Philemon. And then he's mentioned again in Colossians. Paul's writing this letter to the Colossians, and at the very end of the book, he says, oh, by the way, uh, Demas and Luke say hi. That's the second time he's mentioned. And then he's mentioned the third time in 2 Timothy. Paul writes this to his friend Timothy, surprise there, knowing that he's nearing the end of his life, catching Timothy up on where everyone is, and he says this, do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica because he loved this world. And this is where I got stuck. And this is where our hard truth comes from this morning. This guy, Demas, we learned three things of him. He's a fellow worker. He says hi to people. And he betrayed Paul. 
He turned his back on Paul. He deserted Paul. He says, Demas betrayed me because he's fallen in love with this world. And all these years later, here we are, believers, followers, constantly battling with this thing we call worldliness. That ultimately Demas succumbed to, succumbed to, succumbed? Why don't I know that? It's probably succumbed. If you want to look it up afterwards and tell me, I th- I'm pretty sure it's succumbed. Um, you say succumb. I don't know if that succumb's a word. So why do we struggle with this thing? Why do we struggle with worldliness? Because we want to be liked by people. When I say that, that sounds like something out of middle school. I understand that. But that's not what it is. Like, we, we don't want to be hated by people. We want to be liked. We want to be appreciated. We want to be loved for who we are, right? We want to be accepted. We want people to embrace us. But when it comes to that desire, when it comes to that need or that want, Jesus had a very hard truth for us. He had a hard truth for Demas. That was spoken well before Demas' time as a follower. He had a hard truth back in the book of John chapter 15. That's where we're going to spend our time today. Before we get to that hard truth, know this. The majority of chapter 15, Jesus was teaching about how he is the true vine. You guys remember that lesson? Most people remember that lesson. It's taught, you know, most Bible studies, Sunday schools, like we're all familiar with the analogy. If you're not, I'll catch you up on it a little bit. It's not about agriculture. It doesn't have anything to do with gardening, the true vine, all right? Um, It's just a way to say, you know, it's a statement on your union with Christ. Jesus is saying that our lives are made for a relationship with God, much like a branch is connected to a vine. And the way that we grow and flourish is the same way that a branch would grow and flourish, by staying connected. And if you stay connected, you will produce fruit, just like a branch produces fruit, because life comes from the vine. Now, the branch may not want to be connected. That's you. A branch may not want to stay connected to the vine. A branch might want to be free, might want to be on its own. If you rip a branch from a vine, it'll look free over there on its own, but not being connected, eventually it's just going to wither and die. Eventually it'll lose life. And once it dies, it's going to decay and then it'll be thrown in a trash dump or rubbish if you're British. It'll be thrown in a trash dump. Trash dump, that's a translation of the phrase that Jesus uses to talk about hell. He uses the word Gehenna. It was the name of a place outside of Jerusalem where trash was thrown and incinerated. And the fire in Gehenna constantly burned. It never went out. So when he preaches about Gehenna or he preaches about hell, he says, don't go there. Stay here, stay connected to me. And he wraps up the vine illustration in verse 11 saying, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. 
the vine is to be the source of all of our joy. So keep that in mind. Everything that we're about to talk about, look through that lens of Jesus being the vine as he teaches us a very hard truth just a few verses later. This is the hard truth. This world will hate you. This world will hate you because it hated him first. I almost feel like I should give a disclaimer because I did this at 9 a.m. and there wasn't a smile in the room. But I was told we were talking about hard truths. This one's hard. This one's hard to wrestle with, but it's true. Therefore, it's important to teach. Imagine being the disciples at this time. They've just been given this joyful message here from Jesus about staying connected to him, having union with him, bearing fruit in their lives. Um, all of these things that you and I now know years later is a blessing. And the disciples are thinking, yeah, sign me up. I want to be part of that. I want that to be my life. Let that be my life. And Jesus is just like, okay, but hey, just a quick heads up. Everything that you believe and that you want to live your life for, everything that you know to be true, the world doesn't believe it. And they're going to hate you for it. They'll hate you, but they hated me before. In other gospel accounts, Jesus refers to this as counting the costs. Or another way to word that is, will this actually be worth it for you? Now, the answer, of course, is yes. I've given this message to students many, many times. Like, you know, it doesn't, it, it's not going to get easier once you make that decision, but it does get better. The answer, the answer is always yes, but I think most of us would probably answer in that vein, but you might not feel so inclined to answer that way if something unexpected came as a result of you following Jesus. So this brings me back to this movie that I watched. In this movie, there's a priest played by Andrew Garfield who volunteered to go to Japan to spread the gospel in the 1600s. He's captured by the Japanese shogun government who has made Christianity illegal. And if the story, because it is a fictional story, if the story was less clever, if it was just like any other movie that you see nowadays, if it was less intelligent, he would be captured, he would be tortured, and one of two things would happen. He'd either give up on his faith or he would die being faithful. But the story's smarter than that. And instead, when he's captured, he's fed very well. He's given Japan's finest clothes. He's given a house. He's under guard, because he's been arrested, but they put him in a nice house. And instead, his followers are tortured. His followers are persecuted. And he has to watch that. And they tell him to renounce his faith. They say apostatize. Apostatize, which basically is, you know, denounce God. He refuses to do it. As I would assume any Christian would. He refuses to do it. And then they tell him, 
the price, this is a line from the movie, the price for your glory will be their suffering. And then Jesus asks us, will this actually be worth it for you? Now, I consider myself blessed that I don't ever have to go through that. And you should as well. We live in America, present day. None of you are going to have to worry about your kids seeing you get tortured for your faith. That's a good thing. Um, but it still happens. This is very true in Afghanistan, in Iran, in Yemen, in Somalia. We are blessed to be here. But we're still hated we're still hated here. While it's not the same example as what was happening in 1600s Japan, here's a couple of examples. A lot of you know I used to work for a parachurch ministry before I started doing this. We reached kids who were not Christian, kids who were unchurched. Um, a lot of kids who had no interest in going to church, right, Stu? Um, and occasionally something incredible would happen. God would move and these kids would find Jesus. I have known students that have been kicked out of their homes for finding Jesus. I have known students whose parents disowned them because they found Jesus. I've known employees who've been fired from their jobs for having integrity and not lying about something because it helps the company. And why not? Company doesn't care, they care about the company. They're not gonna put you first. That's why your job is not your identity, he is. Here's another scenario that I know of. What do you think happens if a non-believing couple gets married and one of those spouses years later finds Jesus and the other doesn't? How long does that marriage last? How is someone ever going to understand you putting Jesus before them if they don't even believe in him? Do you think those people question if this is actually going to be worth it in their life? I think they probably do. The world's hatred might be disguised under a very gentle appearance here, but hatred is hatred. So the disciples, they're obviously confused. They maybe have a few questions in their head. I'm sure some of us have questions as well. Um, and Jesus answers all of those questions. Any question that you have, any question that I had when I was re researching this, even Martin Scorsese's questions in that movie. Jesus answers. So we're going to get into it. John 15, 18 says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. When we're judged, we tend to respond with like this righteous anger. Like we have the right to respond that way. But it's not just us. We react that way to things that have nothing to do with us, to news stories that we're not involved with in any way, shape, or form. Um, obviously, we always want the best outcome, but we would want the best outcome for ourselves. So that's, that makes sense. So we fight for what we think is justice, whether it involves us or not. And this played out from last week to this week, because for seven days, all I'm hearing about is Will Smith and Chris Rock. 
and it doesn't stop. And people keep talking about it, and people keep sharing it, and I keep getting updates because I follow movie news, and the updates are so worthless, and they don't tell you anything. And I'm just thinking, to my, like, and people are taking sides. Like, well, he was right for doing it because he said this. Oh, well, he said that because he's a comedian, and violence is never the answer, and yada, yada, yada. And we're debating who's actually right in a situation like that. Meanwhile, me and my wife are like, what year is this? Is this 2022? Or is it 1996? Because we're talking about Will Smith and Chris Rock. Still. For seven days. <sighs> Sorry for the tangent, but we fight for what we think justice is. We've already seen in the Gospels how the world saw Jesus. Unbelief, anger, actively trying to sabotage him or murder him. Trying to stone him in public. Ultimately, he was crucified, the most unjust punishment in the history of mankind. But before it happened, Jesus is saying to his disciples, just a heads up, we are moving into a period where the world is going to hate you too. But before you react, before you get angry, before you get afraid, don't forget that they've already hated me. Verse 19 says, the world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. We don't like change. Especially today, we don't like change. We're not accustomed to it. We like for things to stay the way that they've always been or with what our comfort level is. But the gospel brought about the biggest change that the world had ever seen. It turned everything on its head. In Acts 17, there's a Greek city called Thessalonica. I mentioned it earlier. Um, and it's on the brink of riot. And in the middle of all of this chaos that's going out in the city, the Jews drag two believers um, over to the city council and present them. And they say, Paul and Silas have been causing trouble all over the world. Now they're here to disturb our city too trouble all over the world and what trouble is that it's the good news it's the gospel that's how it was received that's how people saw it trouble it was seen as trouble to everyone that encountered it because a message that changes everything that much is very disorienting to people scripture says that we're called to be the light in a dark world and what does light do in darkness? It illuminates. It illuminates things that you could not see before, things that were hidden. Because you are not of this world, because you are the light, and because, you are how, how, because of how you are called to live, you are going to illuminate things in this world. And it's going to show people the reality of how they live. And they're going to hate you for it. Verse 20 says, do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. He's quoting himself here from chapter 13. A little bit earlier, probably like just a few hours before this. Hours before he's washing his disciples' feet. 
And he says, if I am the master and I'm giving you this example of humility, then you, my servants, are to do the same. And now hours later, he's using the same exact example. He's saying, if they hate the master, they're going to hate the servant too. If they hate the one in charge, they're going to hate the ones that he's in charge of. That doesn't make sense. Here's a, here's a more modern example. If you hate Tom Brady, you're going to hate whatever team Tom Brady hate, plays for. Is that accurate? You're going to hate the team that he left. Everyone still hates the Patriots. <laughs> he's not there anymore, and they're not good. But we still hate him. If the world would hate him, and they hated him to the point of persecution and death, it would be foolish to think that they would not hate us as well. And if not hatred, if not persecution, then the last option is conversion. Here's a history lesson. You see this dichotomy a lot in the Old Testament. Joseph is a man of God who goes into Egypt, a land that is opposed to God. Daniel is a man of God who goes into Babylon to serve, but Babylon is known for being a godless nation. Paul goes to all of these countries, all of these nations, where Christians are persecuted to no ends. Ephesus, Athens, Cyprus, Philippi, Corinth, everything in the Roman Empire, to places that are known for persecuting Christians. There's hatred not only for the message of Jesus, but for the messengers as well. All of these places are opposed to the word of God, and they seek to get these messengers, Joseph, Daniel, Paul, to compromise the truth, to compromise what they're preaching, to convert them to just a little bit of what the world thinks, because they hate what they represent otherwise. There was a Roman emperor named Constantine um, who converted to Christianity in the year 312. And then in the year 313, he made it legal for anyone in the Roman Empire to convert to Christianity, to be a Christian. Um, so that means that before the year 313, it wasn't just illegal to be a messenger, it was illegal just to be a Christian. It was against the law just to believe in God. And you can trace that hatred much farther back than the Roman Empire. In student ministry, middle school, high school, rise, we have just sort of found ourselves mentioning or learning about Adam and Eve the past like three weeks, which is crazy to me. Because you can trace this hatred at the very least all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve chose to eat of the tree... They chose to hate the law of God, therefore hating God. This is even present day. We don't need to talk about others. We could just talk about ourselves. Think of your life and your sin before you were a believer. Think about your sin, the sin that you chose after you were saved. We chose that rebellion instead of living for God. We still choose that rebellion because our love for him is not perfect yet. Our love for him is not perfect. His love for us is. Ours will be made perfect someday. 
this is just an important note to throw out there. God, God doesn't love you because you keep his commands. His love is not conditional like that. I'll say it again. God doesn't love you because you keep his commands. You keep his, you keep his commands because he loves you. You keep his commands because he loves you. It's a hard thing for some people to understand the love of God. A lot of times that relationship gets equated to like a father and a son or a father and a daughter, something along those lines, a father, a father and their child. Um, so I try to look at it through that lens. He loves you. So I'm going to use my daughter's example. Don't tell her. Um, he loves you. So he'll say something like, don't run through the parking lot without looking for cars, which we still teach her. Don't run through the parking lot without looking both ways. We used to tell my daughter that so much, and we're still teaching her that, but there are some lessons that just take time to sink in, just like with us. There are some lessons that are a little hard to learn. I don't think that one's that hard to learn. It's a parking lot. You know, I'm out there and I'm like, what do you do? Like, there's cars right there. Where do you think you are right now? This is a parking lot. She's like, this is where ch cars come to go to church. No, this is where you can die at any second. <laughs> Start paying attention. Obviously, I'm kidding. God has much more grace than that. But still, <laughs> we don't love our kids because they look both ways. But they will stop and look for traffic because they sense your love when they do so. They sense that you love them and it's important for them to be safe. Jesus wants us to be safe, so he gives us and the disciples this heads up. You will be hated by this world because of me. Notice he doesn't say, go out and seek the hatred of the world. When you speak to people, do you speak to people in love? Do you speak to people in kindness? Do your words reflect the love of God? If you said yes, here's a follow-up question. How about on social media? Oh, the groan in the room. I love it. How about on social media? Because a lot of people would be like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm very nice on social media. I follow a lot of you on social media. <laughs> I see some of the things that are written on social media. And there are people who will legitimately think like, oh, good thing I'm being hated. That means I'm connected to the vine. No, that's not what that means. Stop. <laughs> that is the opposite of what that means. Sometimes you're being hated because you're behaving sinfully. Sometimes you're being hated because you're treating people wrong. Do you guys know what forbearance means? not in terms of loans, like the Christian trait, forbearance. If you want to know in terms of loans, there's a guy named Brian Aether that goes here. But to forbear is a Christian value, to have the ability to discern when to refrain, to not think that it's your responsibility to correct every single wrong statement, status, or comment. It's okay to let those things fly by. Are you more known for your Christian character or all of your Christian conflicts? John 15, 21 says, they will do all this to you because of me. 
for they have rejected the one who sent me. The world rejects Jesus, and the world rejects his followers because the world rejects God. The world has always rejected God. Just in case we didn't get that point, Jesus drives it home in verse 25 by quoting David from Psalm 35 and Psalm 69, saying, they hate me without cause. It started with Adam and Eve. They rejected God's word. In David, they rejected God's king. All throughout the Old Testament, they reject God's prophets. I mean, just read the book of Judges, geez. That is just a cycle of rejection and acceptance and rejection and acceptance over and over. For 400 years, over and over, my small group did that as a Bible study. And it was just like, at what point are you just hearing the same story over and over again? Come on, people. Rejection, acceptance, rejection, acceptance, over and over and over again. Because some people react negatively when they're reminded that God is present. And then they just tend to rebel. Verse 22 says, they would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them. But now they have no excuse for their sin. What he's saying here is that just by showing up, the light of Jesus exposed our sin for what it actually is. And what it actually is, is a rejection of God. That's why sin is such a big deal. And I'm sorry for how uncomfortable this makes some people. This isn't like a happy-go-lucky Sunday message. This is a hard truth. Our sin is outright rejection of God. And I'm saying are because I'm part of that. We are either distrustful that he actually cares or we are unconvinced that he knows what he's doing. So what do we take from this hard truth? The world will hate you, but it hated him before. I think the first thing that we can take from this, we know that if the world does not follow, obey, love, and worship Jesus, they hate God. They hate Jesus. And if they hate Jesus, they'll hate you. But knowing that the world will hate you should not change your behavior towards the world. Should not change how you see the world. It does not render every lesson that Jesus has ever taught us as defunct. It's one thing for people to hate him because he is him. It's another thing entirely if people come to hate him because of us. Because we're unpleasant. Jesus was not just our savior, he was our example. And everything that we just read, Jesus is telling his disciples, look, I have lived a certain way. It will get me crucified. If you want to follow me, just know that the things that I call you to do, they're not popular. Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to. He emptied himself and he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. That is our example. He taught us that we are to lay down our lives for others. That's difficult. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. It isn't about talking. It isn't about loving. It's, or it isn't about talking. It's about loving someone with your actions. It's about giving to those who are in need. We live in a world where everyone wants their truth to be the truth. 
where every culture wants power and every culture wants authority. And you know what? Let them want that. That's on them. But our example was Jesus. Our example was Jesus who had all power, who had all authority, and instead he chose to serve. Are you ready for a life like that? Because Jesus isn't just our savior. He is our example. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this message this morning um, that is difficult for all of us to grasp and wrestle with, Lord. I just pray that uh, as we leave here today, that we sit with this and that uh, we understand what it really means to be hated by the world, that it's not the end, that it doesn't mean all is lost, that whatever form that hatred takes, God, that it just means we're following you. Please help us to love this world no matter how they see us. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.